Hi again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Louisville Bats Franchise at 40, a podcast celebrating 40 years of the return of baseball to the city of Louisville. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Nick Curran, and uh, thanks for checking out the podcast, however you're doing that. Uh, we're available a number of places, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Uh, if you get some time to rate, review, subscribe, we certainly would appreciate that. Uh, and you can certainly download it as well. We appreciate you, however, you're checking out the podcast. Took the week off last week because of uh, opening night was on Tuesday, a great opening week at Louisville Slugger Field. And looking forward as we get this 2022 season underway. Uh, Matty Andrews was our guest a couple of weeks ago, and we stay in the radio booth this week for the guy that has been behind the mic for more Louisville baseball moments than anybody else. It is Jim Kelch, the voice of the Redbirds and then River Bats and then Bats from 1989 right through on a full-time basis, the 2009 season. Uh, Jim was back working home games with me back in 2019, uh, filled in a little bit last year as well, and uh, this year... Happy to say back doing home games with me once again, and a pleasure to have Jim. You can hear each and every broadcast on 1450 and 96.1, the Big X Sports Radio in Louisville. Certainly hope you'll check us out, and Jim on all the home games. So uh, great to, to have him, and uh, looking forward to another great season with Kelchie. But he's uh, been behind the mic for a lot of great moments and has a lot of great stories going back to Old Cardinal Stadium and then the the building and the process of Louisville Slugger Field coming to be and moving downtown with a new ballpark and uh, great to have Jim on this uh, this podcast as a guest to delve into him. If you go back in the archives to the old Bat Chat podcast, you can hear from Jim as we did a watch along for the first ever game at Louisville Slugger Field and also a, a couple of broadcaster reunions as well, which are great. If you scroll back through the archives of this podcast, you'll find the Bat Chat podcast and hear from Jim on three different episodes of those. Uh, but this one focusing more solely on Jim his career and time in Louisville and what he remembers over the years about uh, this franchise and Louisville baseball. So enjoy it. Jim Kelch, our guest. It is Louisville Bats franchise at 40 episode number four. Thanks for being with us, Jim. Thanks for doing this. Well, I appreciate you having me. I mean, uh, Greg Galliette, Gary Ulmer, Matt Andrews. I figured I'd fit in there somewhere. I wasn't quite sure where I would niche in, but uh, yeah, it's great to be here with you, Nick. Well, I was hoping we'd get a chance to do this in person, and we are, uh, because uh, you're, you're back working at Louisville Slugger Field for home games, which I'm very excited about. On, on the radio broadcast, you can hear us on 1450 and 96.1, the Big X, and uh, excited that uh, that that has come to pass and was was kind of saving this for when we could do it in person and, and glad we have the chance to do that. I'm the proverbial bad penny. You know that. I, I just won't go away. Well, I keep coming back. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about when a we lucky were, penny, I would say. Uh, see, that's the that's the glass half full guy yeah, right. versus the glass half empty guy. Although I do consider myself a, a glass half full guy. Most of the time, I would say so. But I was thinking about this as, as uh, we had talked about doing this podcast, and I'm thinking, okay, this is the 40th season of uh, this franchise's baseball. I was the voice for 21 years, and then I've come back and done games with you on three different occasions: 19, 21, only a few games, and 22. So that adds three to that. That's 24. Plus, there were two years where I came back here and did exhibition games for the Reds. Yes. So I have broadcast in this stadium and or for this franchise for 26 of the 40 years that it has existed. Now, that, that doesn't challenge Greg Galliette and uh, Gary Ulmer and some of those guys, but that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty darn good. You are the broadcaster of record, I think, when it comes to uh, Louisville baseball. I don't think there's any question about that. Longevity, Nick. Longevity. Yeah, yeah, you got to stay in there. That's the key. Well, you started when this franchise was the Redbirds back in 1989. I guess we start there. Uh, you've you've talked about this a little bit, but but how did you end up in this role in Louisville, g getting here back in '89? I went to the winter meetings in '88 in Atlanta. I was a uh, broadcaster for the Chattanooga Lookouts, and we were the Reds affiliate at that time. And I had a great uh, general manager named Bill Lee, not the spaceman Bill Lee, but the Bill Lee who later went on and ran the uh, Frontier League for 20-some years. And uh, he was 
very supportive of his people moving up in the industry if they wanted to do that. And we were down at the winter meetings, and just as the winter meetings were wrapping up, I ran into a guy who was a broadcaster, and we started talking, and he said, did you, did you talk to these people about this job? Did you talk to these people about this job? And oh, I guess you probably talked to Louisville about that job. And my ears perked up because I hadn't heard anything about an opening in Louisville. And so uh, when I got back to Chattanooga later that day, I called here and talked to uh, the great Mary Barney and uh, said I had heard that they had a broadcast opening. Was that true? She said yes. Gave me uh, Dale Owens' information, and I sent my stuff here. And I was very fortunate because the job had been a seasonal job from 82 to 88, and Dale Owens was turning it into a full-time salesman-slash-broadcast job, which I had done in Chattanooga. And prior to that, I had been in sales in Peoria, Illinois, working for a radio station. So uh, I understood the sales end of it somewhat. And so I think my resume stood out because I did have that experience. And then in the end, Greg Galliette was part of a group of three or four people that were examining tapes. And each of them was putting forth a couple of tapes, giving them to Dale. And then they, the group would then evaluate from there. My tape was with Greg's stuff. And Greg promoted me as, a, as the best of his group. And I think then the, uh, hopefully the tape was, was decent enough. And then uh, my sales... Uh, knowledge, not that I did great sales down in Chattanooga, but I worked at it, uh, pushed me over the top. So I still have in my paper archives at home, I saw it recently when I went to my safe deposit box, the letter from Dale offering me this job, which would have been in, I think it was in December of 1988, and I started up here in January of 89. How about that? So how did that work? You- did you just get a letter offering you the job? Did you get a phone call with the letter? Was the letter the formality, or did you just get a letter that said, "Hey, we're offering you the job"? And you, it was it was just uh, written like that. That was part of part of the process. I had spoken with Dale earlier in the week, and he said, "I am going to send you an offer letter." Okay. And then the letter came, and then I was to look it over and call Dale back and say yes and. Was there any negotiation or anything like that, which I don't recall there being any. But there is a, a, a nice side story to that, and I think I've told you this before. Uh, I, I, had, I had interviewed for the job up here right after Christmas uh, of 88, and I remember we were driving. Uh, we had two kids at the time. We were driving from Chattanooga to Peoria, and that takes you via 65 right by the fairgrounds. And it was midnight or so, and – and uh, we're driving along, and everybody in the car is sleeping other than me, obviously, because I'm driving. And here we come up uh, north on 65, and looming really large on the left as you come up there is Old Cardinal Stadium. I'd never seen it before. And I looked at it, and I thought, my gosh, that could be my stadium where I'm going to call baseball. It, it was overwhelming. It was so big, and I thought, how fun would that be? But about a week or so before that, when uh, I had talked with Dale and he said he was going to give me an offer, he'd be sending me the letter, uh, Bill Lee, who I talked about earlier, pulled a prank on me. He pulled up outside the stadium in Chattanooga, and I had told Bill, I had been in touch with Bill all along, saying this is what's happening with Dale because they would have to hire someone else if I left. And he's like, okay, great, great, great. So he pulls up outside the stadium, unbeknownst to me, and the phone rings. And someone says, Jim, there's a call for you. I get on the phone, and Bill's kind of disguising his voice and saying, this is Dale Owens from the Louisville Redbirds. Look, I, I, I know I spoke to you recently about sending you a, a letter of offer for the job, but things have changed, and uh, I'm not going to be able to do that. And I, you know, was in panic mode. I'm like, I mean, Bill makes fun of me for this to this day. He's like, you went into, like, major panic mode. You're like, well, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. Nothing has happened since then with me. I don't understand why you're changing your mind. And he's like, well, we've just changed our mind. We have to go to another direction. I'm really sorry. And I'm like, well, no, that doesn't make sense to me. And finally, Bill couldn't hold it anymore. He starts laughing. And I'm like, why is this person laughing? He goes, Jim, it's Bill. <laughs> like, oh, my God. So, you know, that's it. To, to this day, and that was, what, 30-some years ago, whenever I see Bill, somehow, some way, that story gets brought up. That is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, full panic mode. Luckily, that wasn't the case, though. You did get the job. Uh, you mentioned driving past Old Cardinal Stadium. When you finally got to go in there for the first time, and 
examine the, the layout and, and maybe even uh, your your first game there. I think you started on the road, but but your first game actually there. What were your impressions of, of just everything uh, about that place? Well, it was enormous, first of all, like I mentioned. Sure. And it was unique because really, as you think about now, the, back then the country and how it was, there weren't any other places kind of like that. I mean, this was a combination football baseball stadium, which there were a lot of those in, in the major leagues back in those days. But this was a kind of a unique place because it was built for baseball, renovated for football, and now kind of being re-renovated again back to a baseball football facility. So uh, in the days before I arrived, the field, remember, was crooked. There was more room down the left field foul line and there was no room down the right field foul line. But they had changed that a couple of years before. So when I got here, there was equal room down both the left field and right field lines. Greg talked about they built the blue ski slope out in right field, which yep. we, I don't know who named it, but it was named the ski slope. And uh, there was this gargantuan area in left center field. In the left field, if you could hit the ball out there, you were a real monster. Uh, I had been in class A ball and double A ball with real grass. So here we had artificial turf, which was uh, really kind of cool to be around because you thought, well, we're never going to get rained out. We've got this turf. And then the location of the press box was so incredibly high, hanging from the ceiling. I yes. mean, they don't build those like that anymore. Maybe that was one of the few that they ever built. Probably for like good that. reason, yeah. I mean, you know, you'd go up there, and it took a little time getting used to, but throughout the course of the years, you'd have guests come up and, and uh, promotional people come up. And the visiting radio guys come up, and when people would walk along that catwalk to get to the the press box area, you'd be bouncing up and down, and you've got people in the booth, and they're looking around like, "What what is going on here? Is this thing gonna fall?" You'd always say, "No, nah, no, nah, it's not gonna fall." You're hoping, <laughs> I hope it doesn't fall. And and then the other thing was, you were really high. I bet you were. Uh, I, I I don't think it's an exaggeration to say you were 150 feet in the air, uh, uh, looking down at home plate here and at most ballparks you sit and you look out and you can see the game but there you had to lean forward and look down because that's where the action was and if you just sat and looked out you'd see the pitcher's mound on out you wouldn't see the batter and any of that so it was very unique and uh but it was exciting as all get out because here i was one step away from the big leagues which had been my dream my goal since i was 10 11 12 years old is to get to the big leagues to be a baseball announcer on the radio and here I was one step away. Uh, incredibly exciting. And uh, I know you got some chances to kind of fill in while the team was still a Cardinals affiliate uh, as the Redbirds. And we can talk about that. But um, it, you, you step in to, to this new job and, uh, well, you meet the, the people, I guess, that they kind of come along with it. You mentioned Dale Owens, uh, the late, great Dale Owens, the, the longtime general manager of this of this club. What are some memories you have of Dale? I know a lot of people, uh, th there's a lot of folks that remember him very fondly uh, around here, including Greg, and I, I know uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk with him a little bit more as this podcast series moves along. But uh, a lot of folks that, that hold Dale in pretty high regard. And I'm one of those because yeah. Dale was nothing – but incredibly great to me through all the years that I worked here. He was the boss every year that I was here. Now, Gary Ulmer came in and technically was president, but we uh, reported to Dale. Dale was the general manager. And uh, as I said earlier, I knew a little bit about sales, enough to get the job and kind of how to do it. But Dale really taught me how to become a better salesperson. And he understood that being a salesperson was not anything that I wanted to do, but he also knew that I had to be competent at it to keep the job as a broadcaster. So he taught me how to do it. He taught me how to put proposals together on a computer and um, put value into proposals for X amount of money, things that cost us in real, that were costs in real costs and things that had value that had no cost to them. And so, uh, you know, he taught me that kind of thing. And, uh, he, he, Dale was a really great believer in radio broadcasting and in radio, so he was always 100% behind us in that regard. And uh, I kind of thought of Dale as an older brother kind of figure, you know, and uh, I have nothing but great memories of Dale and uh, great things to say about, about Dale. He could be quirky, you know, and uh, anybody that's been around the organization for a long enough time remembers the uh, the 95 incident in Buffalo that he got into with fans 
uh, in the finals out there when somebody threw a soft baseball at Mike Gulen as he was coming off the field and Dale was sitting behind the Louisville dugout on the third base side and he went and tackled the guy and uh, was going to get arrested. And, and uh, you know, Dale was a, was a great boss. You could always go to him with ideas and uh, he never said no off the bat. He would look at things and, and figure it out. And, you know, he was an old race, uh, a horse racing guy. So he was a promotions guy that uh, uh, he and Tab Brockman, you know, they came from the horse racing business and they had some quirky ideas about how to promote the events. And uh, yeah, it was great working for Dale. You, you mentioned someone else when you were talking about calling about the job, uh, Mary Barney. Obviously, she uh, a fixture here for a long time. The the team MVP award now uh, named for her, and and everyone seems to have some uh, some Mary Barney stories. Who worked with her? She was a mother figure to everybody who worked here, and uh, had more power with the Cardinals than you'd ever believe possible. I mean, it seemed like she was in decision making mode with the Cardinals about players and equipment and and all that and uh, she ran a she ran a great ship when she was in charge of baseball operations she had that big room at old Cardinal Stadium that had the uniforms and the bats and all the equipment and everything to go in there was like a treasure trove if you're a baseball fan it's like wow look at all this stuff they had the uniforms from the old uh, old days you know they kept them all and all her bats and helmets and all that equipment it was great to go in there and look around at all that stuff and uh, Mary was another one, uh, like Dale, who I, I loved dearly. I have nothing bad to say about her. We got along really, really well. And, uh, I, I would on occasion go in and sit in her office and just talk with her. And she was a baseball lady, you know, she got involved in baseball later in her life, but, uh, she was like a hundred percent just bought into it, you know, and really, really loved it. And in those days with the Cardinals from 82 and, her husband, Walter, really was the first one of those two that got involved with the team. And then Mary got in because of Walter, who had designed the, uh, the Fleur de Lis logo with the uh, swinging uh, bat. And uh, uh, up until 97, when the Cardinals were the affiliate, those 15, 16 years, she ran the ship. I mean, Dale was the boss, and Gary came in as the president. But Mary Barney, it seemed like everything went through Mary. And uh, some of her power diminished when the Cardinals left because, uh, you know, the Brewers and then the Reds had their own way of doing things, and they didn't know Mary from any, anybody else. But, uh, yeah, Mary Barney, some great stories about Mary. We had a lot of fun with Mary. We had some fun at Mary Barney's expense. But the great part about that is she enjoyed it. You know, she loved the attention. She knew everybody around baseball in those days. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that the award, the MVP award, is named after Mary. I only wish we could have seen her last year at the reunion, the 20-year reunion of the 01 championship team. I know she was scheduled to be here. Some things came up, and she couldn't be here, and that was a shame because I think all those guys would have loved to have seen Mary Barney. Uh, that would have been really cool, and I know that was really cool uh, r regardless. Uh, some stories. Are there any memories that stand out about the old place? And I know you shared some of this. If you haven't had a chance to, to listen to it, or, or watch it, you can find them on YouTube, or you can listen to them if you scroll down far enough under this podcast listing. They're still there from a couple of years ago. Uh, we had a couple of broadcaster reunions. Jim was a part of, of both of those with uh, with some of the old partners that, that you have had from over the years, and, and uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to all that stuff. But you, you have a lot of memories from, from, from Cardinal Stadium. And um, one thing I talked about with Greg, and I know it, it became sort of an iconic fixture of that place was the stadium club and uh there there's just a, a lot of stuff that happened both maybe for telling and not telling at the stadium club no doubt about it uh, it was the greatest place on earth you know for uh 10 12 years when i well, no probably eight years nine years when i was out there uh you, you know when you first figured out what this place was you thought you died and gone to heaven it's like really this kind of a place exists we could come to this place after the games it was it was fantastic it was like the most beautiful uh leather couches and and wood walls that were not just fake paneling it was like real great quality wood and and this beautiful bar across the front and uh just an iconic gentleman named danny bannett who ran the place and uh you know, you'd go in there after the games and you'd drink two or three beers and you'd say, how much do I owe you? 
And he'd say, I'll just put it on your monthly tab and you can pay it at the end of the month. And you did this for 15 dates for the month of April. And, you know, your bill, you'd figure it was going to be 80 or $90 for the end of the month. And you'd go up to him and say, what do I owe you? And he'd say, ah, I don't know, $15, $20. And you'd give <laughs> him the money and then you'd start again. You never, ever, you know, and then you'd tip him at the end of every night. But, uh, yeah, Danny was, was the best. And everybody came in there. I mean, team members, the manager, visiting teams. Uh, any executives or scouts or anybody that was in town would come in there and families came in there. And, and uh, uh, I, I just remember my wife and we had three kids then by that time. And Mark Riggins, who was the longtime pitching coach here and is a guy that I hope you have on this podcast because Mark Riggins was just a fantastic man and a great pitching coach. Uh, his wife, Tammy, unfortunately, who passed away a year or so ago, they had a daughter named Chelsea and Chelsea was the same age as our daughter, Laura. And they hung out in the stadium club, too. And Tammy would always say in the later years, you know, our kids were raised in a bar because we spent so much time in there during the season. And uh, during the latter years of of Mark's tenure here, uh, they moved to Louisville. Yeah. They lived over in in Murray later, and that's where they were from. But they lived here in Louisville for a while, and and, uh, two or three winters in a row, we – we're able to get together with them a lot and do things, and it was a lot of fun to keep that baseball tie going during the winter when all the baseball people, quote, were gone. Mark was still here, and so we were able to get together and talk about that. So the stadium club was a fantastic place. And, and then the other thing that I remember is Thunder over Louisville started at Old Cardinal Stadium. And uh, we talked about the press box, and this is something that we never, ever, ever should have been doing. Oh, but boy. there was a ladder – you know, that led from the uh, press box that was hanging down to the roof of the press box. And there were a couple of years in the early years in 89. I think it started in 92, I I think, but I I could be off. Where we would climb to the top of the press box on that roof and watch the fireworks show. Because when you're in the press box, you're kind of leaning out, looking up. You couldn't really see it that well. We would climb up on the top and there – I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it because I'm deathly afraid of heights. Oh, man. When you walked toward the front of the roof, there was no fencing there or anything. It was just wide open. If you kept walking, you could have just walked right off and fell down into the seats. And if I would get within 10 steps of the end, I would get goosebumps and just get sweaty. You know, I couldn't stand it. So I would stand back a little bit. But we were on the roof up there watching – the uh, the fireworks. When this ballpark opened, we tried to do the same thing but on what is now the Miller Time Tap House on the roof up there. That lasted one year, and we oh. were told in no uncertain terms, do not, under any circumstances, climb back up there again in the future. So Wow. <laughs> well, I'll show you. Uh, there's access to the, uh, to the roof here. Behind us? That I was shown by Tony Brown some years ago. Really? That, yeah, I think some folks maybe have taken in thunder from the roof of uh, – of the stadium on on the uh, first base side over there. Well, you know, here in the press box at Louisville Slugger Field, we have a little catwalk area in front of us, and people would, in all these booths along here on Thunder, climb through the windows and sit out there. That way you have an unobstructed view of it. So everybody would be out there, and then it would end. I mean, we're doing a game on Thunder Day, and then you have a game the next day, and so you've got materials and stuff sitting around. You've got people climbing in and out of the windows in different stages of – of a drunkenness. Yes. And yes. Uh, so the next day was a clean, kind of a cleanup morning to get ready to do the game on, on Sunday. So, so those are really my two memories of that place. Other than uh, the fantastic crowds we would have on the weekends, you know, we'd draw 15, 20,000 for a game. And we had a lot of uh, concerts. The beach boys were like a staple every year. Uh, Dale, Dale would bring in these groups and it was fantastic. And, and, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of fun out there at Old Cardinal Stadium back in those days. You think about the days in the Cardinals organization. Uh, are there any, uh, I guess, personalities that immediately come to mind for you? I know you've talked about, uh, uh, from a player's standpoint, I know you worked with a lot of managers uh, when the team was, was under Cardinals affiliation. From a player's standpoint, I know you've talked about Tracy Woodson quite a bit, uh, but, but any – Anybody that, that sort of pops out as, uh, as guys you, you remember vividly? Well, Tracy certainly is one of them because he was here a couple of different times, and he was one of those guys 
that never treated you differently because you were a, uh, a broadcaster versus uh, like at, at, on the road on the, at a hotel or whatever. He treated you like a normal guy. And he loved to go to all sorts of sporting events. I've told you this before. Yeah. And when we would go to Indianapolis back in those days, uh, back in those days, Indianapolis had uh, a professional tennis tournament as part of the hardcore warm-up to the U.S. Open uh, at the campus of IUPUI. They had a beautiful complex up there for tennis. And he would always call me because he knew I loved tennis. We'd go over there and watch tennis. One year down in Oklahoma City, uh, we went to a uh, CBA the old Continental Basketball Association championship game, uh, championship series between Okie City before they were an NBA team and who knows who was playing, but we got rained out. He called me and said, hey, the, the team is playing this finals and uh, uh, I, I think we can go down there and get tickets. And sure enough, we went down there and got tickets. We did the same thing in Omaha one time. And uh, here's the funny, I've told you this. Uh, so we, we get the hotel van to take us over to the place in Omaha to do the game, uh, to watch the game. The visiting team that was in there playing Omaha was also staying at the Ramada Inn where we used to stay in, in Omaha. And so when the game ended, we called the van, called the hotel to get the van to come and get us. And they said, well, the van is already over there picking up the team. Uh, just hop in with them and come on back. So we found where the van was and told the driver who we were. And he said, yeah, just get in. We're waiting on a couple of the coaches to come back. And uh, we were sitting there. Here comes some other guys. And uh, the driver said, are we ready? And somebody said, no, we're waiting on E. We're waiting on E. And we're like, E? Who's E? And so here comes Eric Musselman out. Oh, wow. And they come in. Okay, here's E. We can go now. And so we were sitting there with Eric Musselman. Uh, he, was the, uh, he was the coach of, of the CBA team that was in there playing Omaha. And we're like, wow, this is pretty cool. So he loved to do that kind of thing. Wow. And Eric Musselman's come a long way. He has, since, hasn't he? Since, uh, since that. That is that is very. That's a great story. Uh, there was a guy named Rich Bachelor who was a, a really friendly guy. Howard Prager was on that '95 championship team, who uh, treated us so so well. He was such a great guy. I loved Joe Patini, the manager. Joe is still to this day one of my favorites. Um, uh, the late Jack Kroll taught me a lot in those early years about how to handle players and everything. Uh, Mike Jorgensen was my first ever manager. I didn't get along with Mike really that first year he was here in 89 because I was new in AAA. He was a gruff baseball guy, and I really didn't get along with him that well. But later in life when I'd run into him, uh, we got along great. But when he was the manager and I was the radio guy, that, that green-eared radio guy coming up to AAA for the first time, I don't think he didn't appreciate my enthusiasm back then. <laughs> Too enthusiastic. Too enthusiastic. Too enthusiastic. Uh, that, that's great. Uh, as you move along with the Redbirds, uh, and mentioned I wanted to touch on this earlier, you did get some opportunities to, to fill in on, on Cardinals broadcast, right? Yeah, I did uh, uh, with the help of, of Joe Buck, who was my partner, and, and uh, Jack Buck, who was the announcer for the Cardinals at the time. And uh, Joe had been hired by Dale and when I was hired in, in – uh, December of 88, I think it was in January of 89, just before I started, he called me and said, hey, we're going to bring in a number two guy. You may have heard of his dad, Jack Buck. Well, Jack, of course, was my broadcasting hero, my idol, and I'd never met him, but I, uh, I knew who he was. And so his son, Joe, was coming in. He was a freshman at Indiana, and Joe was going to go to school the first semester and then come to work for the team in the second semester. He did that for two straight years. And uh, so here comes Joe Buck, you know, 18 years old, and uh, we worked together for two years, and we had an opening news conference, and uh, Dale introduced me, and I introduced Joe. I said a few words, and then I introduced Joe, and Joe got up there and said, thank you. I, I'm really looking forward to working with Jim Kirch this year on the broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> so every now, I, I still talk to him every now and then, and uh, inevitably that seems to come up, or uh, we'll be talking, and he'll say, hey, Jim Kirch, how in the heck are you? <laughs> That's fantastic, uh, and again, the broadcast reunions that uh, you had a you've had a lot of incredible partners over the years. Uh, Joe Todd Callis has gone on to be uh, in the big leagues. Mark Neely with ESPN. Uh, Dave Wilson has gone on to uh, uh, a great career. Uh, Matt Andrews the same, and uh, we had everybody uh, over the course of those two reunions. So if you haven't had a chance to check those out, definitely do that again, back in the archives. When this podcast was called the bat chat podcast, you can check all that out. Uh, if you scroll back wherever you get this podcast, uh, 
So Redbirds and under Cardinals affiliation up through 1997, and then the team switches to uh, to become the AAA affiliate of the Milwaukee Brewers. St. Louis moved its operation to Memphis, where it still is. The Redbirds now there. What do you remember about that switch happening and and uh, affiliation changing? You you make all these relationships with the Cardinals for a number of years, and now all of a sudden you have a new big league team. Well, I was just incredibly heartbroken over the whole thing because, as you said, I knew everybody within the Cardinal organization, and from my standpoint, more importantly, they knew me, and I was trying to work my way into the Cardinal booth, and and, uh, I still to this day feel like if Louisville had stayed affiliated with St. Louis because at the end of the 97 season, there was a chance the Cardinals needed a, a, a broadcaster. And I had been doing those Cardinal games with the help of Joe Buck and Jack Buck to get in there and do those uh, uh, Monday games and sometimes Tuesday games, depending on if Jack was back in time or not. And, I mean, I went to L.A. I I went all over Houston. I went all over the place uh, for the Cardinals. I did like 20-odd games a year for three or four years in a row. And uh, they were handled by a company, a sidebar of Anheuser-Busch called Bud Sports. And there was a guy named Steve Uline who ran that company. And Steve and I got along great. He loved me. And he told me at the end of the 97 season, I'm going to push for you to get this job. I think you do a good job. You've done great work for us. And uh, I'm going to push for you to get this job. As late as February, uh, he called me and said, uh, things have hit a snag, but I'm still confident that I can get you in here. But in the end, the Cardinals had a new president, and the new president was very upset with the way things happened with Louisville, the things that were said about uh, the Cardinals via some Louisville people. And so uh, in the end, Steve Uline called me in March and said, it's not going to happen. The relationship between St. Louis and Louisville has been so strained that they don't want anything to do with anybody from the Louisville team. I'm sorry, but you're not going to be able to get in. And it was devastating news to me, devastating. So we had lost the, the franchise. We'd lost the Cardinal affiliate, I should say. We lost all these contacts with the Cardinals, lost out on this job I thought I was going to get, and now we've got this new group of people from Milwaukee, of all places. Like, we don't know anything about these people. But they turned out to be very, very nice. I heard Gary talking about Cecil Cooper and, and uh, Sal Bando. They were very good. Uh, Gary Allenson uh, was the manager those two years. We won the uh, division championship in 98, lost in the playoffs to Durham. And what's new, we all, Louisville's always lost to Durham in the playoffs. And uh, But Gary was a great guy. I really got along well with him. And so it eased that transition uh, from the Cardinals because Gary and, the, and uh, Mike Caldwell was the pitching coach the first year. They were good guys. And uh, uh, Gary Allenson had a really dry sense of humor. And uh, he was a fun guy to be around, and I enjoyed him. And so that eased that transition really, really nicely. You know, 98. Brewers affiliate also joined a new league, the moving from the American Association to the International League. So there was a lot of change. Like for you as a broadcaster, you go from knowing everybody uh, in the league and and then the IL. And I know there was some crossover, but uh, but but kind of a a whole new just everything was new that year. Yeah, because uh, like you say, we did join the International League. And uh, there had been from 89 to 91, actually 88 to 91, but for me, 89 to 91, that crossover between the American Association and the International League. Uh, And so we went to some of those places like Rochester and Syracuse and Toledo and Columbus and got to meet all the all these guys. That's where I I met Mike Tirico in in, uh, just after he had graduated from college back in 89. He and I remember going out with he and Todd Callis. They had gone to school together after a game. And Todd asking him, you know, what his job prospects in that were. And he said, I think I'm going to get hired here by ESPN. I've had a couple of interviews. I'm hoping I get hired by ESPN. Well, Mike's gone on to have a a world-class broadcasting career. Todd's done very well for himself also here getting the Houston Astros TV job. Uh, Re-met Jim Weber again in 1991. Terry Smith, who's the longtime voice now of the Angels, was with Columbus back in those days. And – yeah, so, so everything was changing, but I liked it because in the association we had only eight teams, and so you went to seven places, yeah. and we went to Iowa and Omaha and Oklahoma City all the time, and it really got old. And so all of a sudden we've got these new cities and new places to explore. So it, it was fun. I, I enjoyed when we merged leagues and went to the IL. Uh, that is really cool. So freshen it up a little bit. Uh, 
I don't know how much you remember about this, but in, in 1998, the team moved to Brewers affiliation but still played as the Redbirds. Uh, didn't change team names to the Riverbats until 1999. So uh, the Brewers, but you were the Redbirds. And, and, and Memphis was playing in, obviously, a, a different league as the Redbirds, too. Uh, very unique situation there. But but uh, I don't. Do, do you remember that at all? You, you were still the Redbirds, but you weren't a Cardinals affiliate. That had to be a very odd thing. It was an odd thing because it was a contractual deal where they had one more year that they could use the nickname or, or the Cardinals said you have a year to change. To, to You can use it for another year, but then after that you have to get rid of it. And it was almost like a, it was almost like a comforting blanket that you, you had the name. The Cardinals were gone. All your contacts were gone. And this new group of people in here that you really didn't know, they didn't know you, so you didn't, they didn't trust you. But you had the Redbirds name. And so you had your little safety blanket there. And uh, so they won the division actually as the Redbirds. And then the next year as the Riverbats, they didn't do so well. Uh, I, I never did like the, the name Riverbats. I certainly didn't like the colors that they had come up with initially, that bright purple and green. And uh, so then things really changed. But then at the end of 99 or near the end of 99, uh, season, uh, we started hearing these uh, these rumors that maybe maybe a new stadium was going to be built and maybe a new affiliate was going to happen. And all of a sudden, this incredibly exciting stuff happened with this franchise. Yeah, take us to that. Uh, when did you start hearing about maybe that? I know uh, there there was uh, there were news stories. Uh, you look at newspaper clippings from the time the stadium sort of being bandied about. Uh, Louisville football got a new stadium, which is now a uh, new Cardinal Stadium, as it were, uh, you know, near near the fairgrounds, not far from where old Cardinal Stadium was. Uh, so, you know, they had that. There was some momentum maybe to, to build something down here, downtown, where, where we are now, to, to help revitalize downtown Louisville. Uh, what do you remember about what was maybe passing through the office or, or what you heard about the possibility of, of a new place being built? Well, it was interesting to hear Gary Ulmer talk about that transitional time too, because I know you asked him that yeah. same question. And he talked about some things that I really wasn't aware of, and that is uh, there were people really from the city really pushing to get this stadium built here at the at the corner uh, at the end of Main Street to help start the whole row between Main and 2nd Street or between the stadium and 2nd Street to revitalize that whole downtown area. My personal feeling at the time was, my thought was, why would we leave a facility like we have? If we're going to spend money, let's renovate Cardinal Stadium to make it a baseball-only facility. We have all this incredible parking right here that was free at the time, although they charged some, but for some events it was free. We have this place right off the interstate where everybody knows how to get to everybody knows where the team is playing why can't we just renovate this place and play here and gary talked about that too and and when they compared the numbers of what it would cost to renovate that place versus building a a uh, brand new baseball only stadium downtown the costs were so close that it just made no sense to keep the place out there so once you bought into hey we're going to have this new stadium it's going to be pretty cool uh, then it was really fun to see the plans for this place, get that, come down and take the tour of this place. And like Gary, I have no vision in that area. So when we walked through the old train station, which at the time then was a, uh, was a lawn care of Louisville grain and something, or they, you know, they, they had to do something with lawn care. Uh, I could not envision when we looked out at the junkyard that was out here, that this was going to be a baseball stadium. I'm like, I'm sorry, I just I don't I don't see it. And then finally, when we got to start to see the place unfold, and you could see a stadium layout, and we took tours of the place every now and then. It's like, okay, I can see it. And then I really felt great about it when uh, I was brought up to the press box here and sat down where you are sitting right now without the countertop here, and there was the, the, the bars underneath, and I was told, this is, this is going to be your radio booth. Sit down there, and does it look good for you? Do you need anything special? And the only thing I said was, I want to make sure the windows go up or slide. I don't really want them to slide across. I really want the windows to go up because I like the windows open during the game. And they were like, the plans are for the windows to go up. I'm like, okay, well, that's all. I really care about. And uh, so then I really thought this is really going to happen. And uh, 
yeah, it was it was great fun that first night when uh, uh, the Norfolk Tides were here and we did the game on television. And you you were in here to give input on this very booth, which is uh, which is really awesome, uh, I think. Which hasn't changed much at all. No, I mean you still have the the. 2019. Well, that's from 2019. International yeah. League playoffs. Uh, a schedule on the well, wall. We used to get one of those every year and hang it up. And they don't send us one anymore. So that one, that one's just the one until they start sending it again. Speaking of Dale Owens, which we were earlier, Dale used to come in every night and with a highlighter, yep. highlight that night's game as you get. So we'd go down the schedule for the whole year that's hanging on the wall, and uh, he'd highlight the games that we had played so we could see the tre- the uh, uh, progression that we were making throughout the season. A tradition that Matt Andrews continued, by the way. Uh, Yeah, and would highlight them. I never did that. I just put the poster up. I like to be able to see where everybody was at a glance, but neither here nor there. That was very nice. It was, but they uh, they don't send us those anymore. A lot of things have changed over the last few years, as it turns out. Uh, By the way, you mentioned the first ever game here against the Norfolk Tides back in 2000. Uh, if you want to go in-depth on that, we did a watch-along podcast about it a couple of years ago, which, again, you can find in the archives uh, of this podcast as well. Uh, a deep dive into that opening night and, and so many different uh, aspects of it as we rewatched that TV broadcast. Uh, you can do that with us if you, uh, well, scroll down in the archives on this podcast. So uh, be sure to check that out. Uh, same time, new stadium. You mentioned it. The thought of Reds affiliation, what do you remember about that? Giddy, absolutely giddy, because I thought, you know, this is Reds country. We are in Reds country. We're an hour and 15 to an hour and 20 minutes away from stadium to stadium for the Cincinnati Reds. This was Reds country. Most people who liked Major League Baseball in this area were Reds fans. Uh, Sure, there were some Cardinal people. Like, I know Gary and his dad were big-time Cardinal people, and I was too at the time because I'd grown up in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, but I thought, you know, this area is for the Reds. If anything can inject new life into this franchise, and it needed it at the time, a new stadium and a new affiliate with the Reds will be what can do that. And, boy, it really it really did. Uh, we got Dave Miley to come down from Indianapolis. He was the Reds' AAA manager up there. And, you know, the news had started to leak out in the 1999 season. And so when we would play Indianapolis – all the talk between the people from that franchise and this franchise were, hey, I think you're going to be the Reds next year. We were, were like, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Nobody's told us that for sure. I, yeah, I've heard the rumors and, you know, broadcasters were Howard and his partner at the time, Brian Giffen, were like, uh, oh, I hope it doesn't happen. You know, I love this staff. Dave Miley is my best friend. And, and uh, uh, you know, we're so used to winning with the Reds. I don't think we can do it without them. And, and uh I think it was the day after the 1999 season ended that the affiliation was announced that we were going to be uh, with the Reds, and I think the Indians protested and filed a uh, protest with the league. But there's no way that they can announce it the day after the season and and not have been talking with them. And, of course, it was denied. And The story goes, and whether it's true or not, I don't know, is that uh, Jim Bowden, who was the general manager of the Reds at the time, during the 99, maybe it was even the year before, the 98 season, had gone up to Indianapolis to extend the uh, working agreement, the PDC, with the Indianapolis team. And when they got into a meeting, uh, the general manager up there, uh, the late Cal Burleson, said uh, he kind of tried to play hardball with the Reds because they were very good and they'd make the playoffs. But as often happens in the minor leagues, when the season ended on Labor Day weekend, is that these players would get either called up to the big leagues or if they were older, sometimes they would get released or whatever would happen. And the team that would go into the playoffs that first week of September was really not the team that got you there. You were playing with a lot of double-A guys, maybe even some A-ball guys. So to try to win the championship was very difficult because it was really a different team. And then it happened a couple years in a row for Indianapolis. And those folks, we always used to say the joke that in Indianapolis – they considered themselves the big league club and the big league team was their affiliate, you know, and it wasn't the reds with the Indians being their triple a affiliate. It was the Indians as the triple a team. And our, our farm club is the reds. And we take, take people from there and send them there. And that was always the joke around the league about Indianapolis and that regime that ran the team at that time. And so apparently the rumor had it is that Cal was playing hardball with, with the Reds, and when they walked out of the meeting, they didn't have an agreement, and supposedly Jim Bowden had said, 
we will not resign with that group. And that's how maybe the ball started rolling uh, for Louisville to become the affiliate. Now they've been the affiliate for, what, 20-odd years. The rest is history, yeah. starting in 2000. Pretty crazy. Um, you, you were here for a lot of great moments when the team moved to this ballpark and was a AAA affiliate of the Reds. Uh, you mentioned that 0-1 reunion last year, that team winning uh, the Governor's Cup championship and, and a one-game series, and, and obviously it came to an unfortunate end because of September 11th, but but won that title and, and got to be honored last year, which was great. Uh, the first two years of the sweet three-peat, as it were, in 2008 and 2009, winning division titles, of course, won another one in, in 2010 when you had gone full-time with the Reds. But uh, a lot of characters over those years that you were here with the Reds in this ballpark, and uh, want to start with a guy you – you already brought up and and Wade Miley or not Wade Miley Dave Miley goodness gracious Wade Miley on my mind uh, who uh, who was announced on the Cubs injured list yesterday as we're recording this but you, you mentioned Dave Miley and uh, we got to see him last year back uh, back at the ballpark as part of the reunion and I know there are a lot of great Miley stories out there there are so many Miley stories that you could do a podcast on just Dave Miley stories if you had me in here and Jeff Hollis in here oh my and uh, Matt Andrews and whomever else I mean we could all tell Miley stories you know forever and uh, maybe but, we could because how many of them would you want to tell in a public setting that's there, the that's the question there's thousands of Miley stories that you could tell publicly and another thousand or more <laughs> yeah. that you could they never could tell publicly uh, but but Dave was a character that 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 part we all know and I had met him as they were the affiliate of the uh, uh, Indianapolis Indians when he was managing up there through of all people Mark Boyle the play-by-play -play announcer for the Pacers on the radio because in 89 when Mark's uh, Mark first got the Pacers job. They had the Pacers summer caravan, and he brought a couple of Pacers players down and uh, contacted me about getting them on the air during a game. And so I forget who the players were now. And Mark brought them down, and we had them on the air, and I got to meet Mark and know him a little bit. We were both in our first years. And uh, uh, he told, gave me his card, so whenever I wanted to come up to go to a Pacers game, give him a call. I did a couple of times in the next two or three years. And then later on, uh, I would run into him. He became friends with Miley. And so on, when uh, I'd go up there, Boyle would be around. And so I got to be friends with Boyle. And in 98 and 99, those last couple of years that they were affiliated, Boyle would come down to Indianapolis. or I'm sorry, come down from Indianapolis to Louisville to hang out in the stadium club. And we got to know each other a little bit more. And so that was kind of the – I knew Miley a little bit. And uh, Miley was a was – a, was a, a jabber. You know, he was always jabbing at everybody to get their goat because that's how he was. And he did it to, you know, we talk on the air a lot about Howard Kelman, the, the longtime yes, voice yes we do. of the Indianapolis Indians. And one time I was interviewing Miley for a pregame show, and he said, hey, I want to play a joke on Howard. Uh, I want you to ask me uh, uh, about uh, something, and, and I'm going to respond in a way that's really going to jab at Howard. And so I just asked Miley, uh, and we did the interview, and this was a separate thing, uh, just an, an innocuous question about something. And he said, uh, he answered the question. He goes, you know, that's a good question, Jim. Uh, I wish our announcer asked intelligent questions like that, but he always asked me inane things that make no sense. And I'm glad that uh, it's good to be dealing with a guy that knows what he's talking about. And then when we were done with that, he said, I want you to play that for Howard. <laughs> and so I found Howard, and I – and. Uh, and, you know, I played it up like, hey, don't you, you and Miley don't get along, huh? And he's like, no, no, we're, we're best of friends. What are you talking about? I'm like, well, and I played the little <laughs> tape for him, and he got all flustered. Oh, and, no. uh, I, think, I, I think he went down right then and there. I'm, I'm not sure positive he, I, of that. I'm certain he I probably I think he went did. down and talked to Miley, and Miley finally convinced him that it was a joke. And, if, in fact, I think I had to go back and play – the regular interview for Howard, and then that little segment to prove to him that it was a joke to set him up. And, you know, how Howard's, Howard's sense of humor is different. And so he, I don't think he really got, like, it's a joke, Howard. And Howard's like, yeah, but why would you play a joke like that? I don't get that. And so, But that was a funny part. And then when Miley got here, he had so many quirks about things that he did. He, he was a great baseball manager. And, uh, he, you know, Traveling with him was something. I, I told, I've told the story before about Easter Sunday, yes. that first year. Uh, we're up in Toledo. It's Easter Sunday. 
and uh, it's a day game in Toledo, and the game ends, and I go down to the clubhouse after the game. There's only a few people hanging around, and he said, uh, I think you know, it was like 4.30 or something, hey, what are you doing for, for dinner, Easter dinner tonight? And I said, I don't know. Let's go out and get something somewhere. He goes, that's a good idea. We'll do that. And uh, his uh, girlfriend at the time, wife later on, uh, Pooh, mm-hmm. uh, was there. And uh, he goes, yeah, the three of us will we'll go out and get a good Easter dinner. Yeah, I know a place, he said. I'm like, okay. You know, me, Mr. Naive, this was 2000. I had been in the league for 11 or 12 years, but still, sometimes you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> well, you just never have dealt with people like this before. So we get in their car. We're driving along. And I said, hey, where are we going? Like, what kind of a place is open on a Sunday to do this? And he goes, I, don't worry about it. I got a place. I got a place. And so we pull up to this light. And he goes, there it is right there. And it's just like this little white building. And it was all beat up. And I'm like, what is that? It looks like an old warehouse or something. He goes, no, no, no. It's good. We pull in. And, and uh, we walk into the door. And it's like a, a run-down, beat-up old neighborhood bar. And we walk in. And they're like, People in there go, hey, Dave, Dave, how are you? You know, he knew everybody in there. And I said, what is this? I thought we were going out for dinner. He goes, no, no, this is, this is good. And he says to the lady behind the bar, hey, you guys serve food? And she said, uh, I might have a frozen pizza or something sitting around. You want me to cook it? And he turns to me and goes, you want her to cook the pizza? I'm like, yeah, I guess. So we sat there and ate frozen pizza, and I thought we were going out for Easter dinner somewhere. And we go to a little neighborhood dive bar, and she's saying, yeah, I think I might have a frozen pizza back there for you. But that was the essence of Miley. He, he loved these little dive bars. There was one in Syracuse uh, over near the big mall that you talk about a decent amount. There was a little dive bar over there that he loved to go in. And in Toledo, you know, there were little dive bars yeah. in, in the, most of these cities. If you really looked for them, you could find these little dive bars, and Miley could find them all. Like you and diners. Me and Miley, diners. Miley with dive bars. Yes. Me and, in fact, I was talking today about uh, the Twig and Leaf, and I said, is the Twig and Leaf still there as a diner? And the guy I was talking to, he said, yeah, you know, it's been – Open and close a number of times, but the Twig and Leaf is the most famous diner probably in Louisville. Hanging around. Yeah. Uh, some other characters you would have run, run across here. I know uh, Corky Miller, of course, uh, the legend that is Corky. His number eight retired here at the ballpark, and uh, you had a chance to, well, to work with him a little bit when he was a player. I worked with him as, as a player here and then later as a coach and even in the big leagues. Yeah. He was up there when I was fortunate enough to do those Reds games for uh, a number of years. But uh, Corky was the kind of guy, just like Tracy Woodson, that you could go to talk to Corky, and Corky didn't treat you like you're the media guy, a radio man, don't come around, didn't know your name. Corky knew you, treated you great. You could always go to Corky, and if you had a problem with another player or something like that, you could go to Corky and say, hey, I'm having a real issue with this guy. Is this just his personality? Why is he acting like this? And Corky may come back later and say, hey, you, you, he, he got a problem with you because you said this about him or his wife said that you said this, and, and then you'd have to go explain, like, hey, you know, that didn't happen. And uh, Corky was like, don't worry, I'll, I'll straighten it out. I'll tell him about you. Or if new players came along, this was the key for a guy like Tracy Woodson and also a guy like Corky Miller. When new players came to the team or a big leaguer would come down and you'd go up and ask them to do an interview or introduce yourself, they would inevitably, although you wouldn't know this or wouldn't see it, go to Corky or somebody else and go, hey, this radio guy from the team came to me, wants me to do this interview. What kind of a guy is he? And they would give you the thumbs up. He's a good dude. Don't worry about him. So then all of a sudden they'd be, they'd be friendly to you. And so that's the kind of guy Corky was. And, uh, yeah, Corky Miller is, is the best. He is. Uh, love Corky. It's, uh, we still get to see him as a rover every now and again uh, as the catching coordinator with the Reds and uh, still uh, a great man. and Love whenever he's going to be in town. We all love Corky. Hopefully he'll be a guest on this podcast at some point down I, the road. I think you'll be able to swing that. Well, we'll see if we can swing it. He'll be gruff to you about it. He'll, he'll put up some objections, and then he'll go, yeah, when are we doing it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why we love Corky. Uh, but this has been great. I, you know, uh, I, I think it, it's just, uh, you know, here and 
and the, the old place and just everything about this, I, I think uh, when you talk about Louisville baseball on the radio, I think you're synonymous with it. And then, of course, uh, went on to the Reds in that 2010 year, started full-time there. But uh, as you talked about, some 24 different years in some way, uh, either broadcasting here, broadcasting for the team, or, or whatever it may be. And uh, a lot of great stories and, and just, uh, I mean, incredible to, to get to talk to you about some of them and uh, if folks could hear the ones that we don't tell on the air, I think uh, I think they would enjoy it just as much as I do. But we'll we'll leave those there. Well, I will say this just to, to close things out, Nick. Through the years that I was here, 1989 through 2009, 21 seasons, my goal was always to get to the big leagues. And in the early years, in particular, I really wanted to move up fast. But what I have found through talking with people like George Grand, in particular, was one who said to me. It's great to have goals, but enjoy where you are at the time. Where your feet are now is where you need to enjoy yourself. And and I took that seriously, and I really did enjoy the years that I was here. I could be, I'm sure, gruff at times and disappointing and upset at times because I wanted to move up, and I saw people moving up that I thought I was better than, and I didn't understand how they were getting an opportunity, and I wasn't getting an opportunity. But through it all, I loved broadcasting baseball. I didn't, I don't even to this day really mind travel at all. Some of these long trips that you, you've got uh, set up for the rest of this year, like to Omaha and to Iowa, I could have done them back in those days easily. Now I'm not sure if I could, could stomach those on the bus or not. But I loved being with the team day in and day out. Uh, I just always remember talking to front office people throughout the course of my years here saying, oh, thank goodness this 10-game homestand is over. I can't wait to have some time off. I feel bad for you. you got to go on the road. And I said, no, no, no. Don't feel bad for me. I'm lucky to get to go on the road. I want to go on the road with the team. It, it's You're going to be doing whatever on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday when the team leaves town, and you're going to be thinking, thank goodness the team is out of town so I can have some fun. But my fun is doing the game with the team. My fun is being there in Norfolk or being there in Syracuse or Rochester and doing the games, that's what I love to do. And so I always loved it. And, and, I, and I found out after the Reds stuff came to an end for me after 2017, it took me a year or two really to decide, am I, am I now burned out on this? I can't do this. They have ruined my lust for doing the games. And what I found out in talking to you in 2019 was, no, they had not ruined my love of broadcasting. I was so fortunate to be able to work with you in 2019 then COVID in 20, did a little bit of stuff last year in 21, went on the trip when your daughter was born in September over to Memphis and got to be the number one guy again. And it was, you know, it took it took a game or two to kind of get back into the swing of that because that seat and this seat are totally different seats. But it was so much fun. And then when this opportunity came up again this year, you know, I, I've told people, they're like, why are you going back to the minor leagues? And I said, it's not about the minor leagues, it's about broadcasting baseball day in, day out. It, it's like, an, it's like an, it, you, you get, uh, it's in your blood, you know. It, it's an, uh, it, it, you can't get rid of it. It's what you do, and it's what you want to do, and it's the only thing that really makes you happy. So that's why I was able to come back, and that's why I feel fortunate that in both 19 and last year and this year, you extended offers, and, and I, I thought, you know why wouldn't I do it? Because it's so much fun. Well, it's been it's been my pleasure. I I, I love having you. It's been great to to work with you and uh, to to get to know you better as we, we kind of knew each other in the past. But but uh, it's been phenomenal for me. And I know uh, people listening have enjoyed it. And and be sure to tune in throughout the year. Uh, games at Louisville Slugger Field, fourteen fifty ninety six one. The Big X. You'll be able to hear Jim back on the airwaves here and uh, I think appropriate as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of this story franchise uh, Jim is big a part of it as anybody thanks for taking the time to do this it, it has been a blast and we'll we'll be seeing you on the radio tonight and and throughout the season very enjoyable thank you Nick all right that was uh, Jim Kelch just a uh, great stuff great stories and great memories from uh, from baseball and his time and the affiliation changes from the Cardinals to the Brewers and then to the Reds and 
uh, from one ballpark to the other and some good moments on the field and some of the personalities from over the years as well. An hour that, that flew by with Jim. And again, looking forward, you can hear from him throughout the season on the broadcast, a perfect way to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the franchise, having Kelchie back in the radio booth. You'll hear him on home games. You'll hear each and every game on 1450 and 96.1, the Big X Sports Radio. But hear from Jim specifically on home games, a pleasure to have him back in the booth this year. Fun episode. Again, check us out however you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Rate, review, subscribe, download. Uh, We certainly appreciate any of that and glad you were able to find us. We're looking forward to another great episode next week. Still finalizing details on who that will be, but looking forward to uh, episode five coming your way next week. Until then, thanks so much for listening. I'm Nick Curran. It is Louisville Bats Franchise at 40. We'll talk to you next time. 